Today's reading is entitled, My Commitments to Myself by Laura Mancuso. I take care of myself first because I am deserving of exquisite care. I take care of myself to maintain the capacity to help others. I move and stretch my body every day. I spend time in nature, attuning my senses to the earth's wisdom. I ration my daily exposure to the news. I, I identify and access credible sources of information. I protect myself from being overwhelmed by information about the pandemic. I pace myself. I sit with the reality of uncertainty and impermanence and allow it to temper my desire for control. I listen without judgment to others' reactions, which may be different from mine. I forgive myself and others when stress brings out our shadow selves. I feel fear fully when I am fearful. I experience sadness fully when I am sad. I allow anger fully when I am angry. I relish joy fully when I am joyful. I seek out healthy pleasures and indulge in them without guilt. I remind myself that feelings are transient, states that move through me. They do not last and they do not define me, nor do my thoughts. I balance my drive for self-improvement with compassionate acceptance of myself as I am right now. I initiate contact with loved ones to let them know I hold them in my heart. I seek out with increased sensitivity those who are the most vulnerable. If possible, I share my resources with those who need help to survive. When possible, I move away from people, situations, and experiences that do not serve my highest good. I strengthen my connection to my sources of spiritual strength so that I continue to be replenished. I acknowledge the nearness of death as a key motivator for living a full life. I pray for the suffering of all beings to cease. I grieve my losses and celebrate my successes. I remain open to new ways of being, surprising sources of joy, and unanticipated discoveries every day. Again, that is uh, my commitments to myself from Laura Mancuso. She goes by Luna. She's an ordained interfaith minister who serves the Santa Barbara, California community. Thank you, Liz. Again, thank you to our musicians. I know uh, I appreciate your gifts of music this morning. Thank you so much. There's a yard sign that I've been seeing around Lexington, Kentucky recently. In fact, there's one just a couple doors down from the church. Its message is pretty simple. In bold letters, it says, Jesus 2022. Now I laugh every time I see it, not because I think the sign is silly, but because of the way I read it. For me, there's at least two ways of reading that sign. Jesus 2022. <laughs> like you're announcing a pro wrestler or a blockbuster film. 
But the way I read it the most, and the way I prefer to read it is, Jesus. <laughs> 2022. Now, I don't know the people that live there. I don't know what church they go to, what they believe, how they voted, or what that sign means to them. But I can guess. So divided are we that simple theological statements on a yard sign often yield a wealth of information. I could keep guessing, right? How they voted, how they'll vote again. I could guess what church they go to. Oftentimes those signs have Go to Porter Memorial Baptist or Clay's Mill Baptist or one of the other Baptist churches. I could have a strong inkling as to what kind of theology is behind that sign. There's a part of me that wants to be wrong in my guessing. The human beings like to fill in blanks, right? It's what we do. There's nothing wrong with it always. But there's a part of me that wonders every time I see that sign in 2022, are you a friend or a foe? I try not to answer that question. And I share that with you because none of us are immune from the turmoil around us. Even a yard sign can be a line in the sand these days. But today isn't about that divide that is around us or even how we're all swept up in it. It's more about how we're doing. In churchy language, how is it with your spirit? Underneath that simple sign, Jesus, 2022, there's a smaller statement that sums it up. Our only hope. Whether or not I would agree on anything with the people who put out that yard sign, I can certainly understand the feeling behind it. We are all looking for hope. Some people put that hope in the belief of a Messiah returning and ending the world and ushering in a new one. Some people put that hope in our former president or our current one. And there are still signs out there that forego it all, throw their hands in the air. And you know which ones I'm talking about, the ones that say giant meteor 2022 <laughs> or 20, whatever. While I wager most Unitarian Universalists would opt for one of those tongue in cheek bumper stickers or signs that says, stop the violins, imagine world peace. I do wonder if you were to slap your hopes for a better tomorrow on a yard sign, what would it say? Or even your exasperation. If we're being honest about the Jesus 22 sign, it isn't just about hope. What often gets left out of our conversations about hope is what inspired it in the first place. Yes, there's anticipation, there's new beginnings, but there's also pain. There's disappointment. There's feeling lost. What hopes and disappointments would your yard sign encapsulate? Or forget the yard signs. What's on your heart this morning? It is my conviction, conviction that communities like ours should ask ourselves these questions all the time, especially after two years of upheaval. But some of you are tired of those questions, right? Stop asking me how I'm doing, Reverend, please. Some of you want the, it all to go away and things to return to normal. That'll never happen. We may approach a way of being that is familiar to how it once was, but it'll never be the same. 
And this isn't just about the pandemic. It's about several things weighing down on each of us. The climate crisis is being felt right now. And this is just the beginning. The rise of nationalism worldwide is putting democracies at risk, including here at home. And speaking of here at home, there's a significant cultural upheaval. Some might even say trauma that is impacting us. Now, in times of personal trauma, I know where to look for help if I need it. At least I hope most of you do. But where do you look when there's cultural trauma? What resources are there for us? It should come as no surprise that I look to this time as a spiritual crisis. And as a church of the human spirit, we get to wrestle with how we will adapt to the times before us. Discover and rediscover hope. Remember to celebrate life. Remember the joy. And to grapple with our place in this big picture. Thomas Merton, the late Trappist monk and spiritual writer from Kentucky, Bardstown, just outside of Bardstown, one of my favorite authors offers a diagnosis for what is before us. Now, it's kind of funny to use that word, diagnosis. But in using it, it shifted my perspective. Underneath the political process, the climate policy, populism, nationalism, and so on and so forth, there is a spiritual illness. Spiritual, yes, because it's incorporeal, but also because it strikes at our core humanity. Merton laid it all out in 1966 in one of my favorite books of his, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. I'm curious how his words resonate today or how things might have escalated or dissipated. Merton writes to us, we are living in the greatest revolution in history a huge spontaneous upheaval of the entire human race, not the revolution planned and carried out by any particular party, race or nation, but a deep elemental boiling over of all the inner contradictions that have ever been in a human. A revelation of the chaotic forces inside everybody. This is not something we've chosen, nor is it something we are free to avoid. He continues, this revolution is a profound spiritual crisis of the whole world, manifested largely, largely in desperation, cynicism, violence, conflict, self-contradiction, ambivalence, fear and hope, doubt and belief, creation and destructiveness, progress and regression, general anguish for a moment, obsessive attachments to images, idols, slogans, programs that only dull that anguish. We do not know if we are building a fabulously wonderful world or destroying all that we've ever had, all that we've ever achieved. Merton's words ask us to confront several things, but chiefly the worst of our humanity and the paradoxes present in our progress. We could devote a life's work to paradox, I imagine. Now there's this image of Thomas Merton as a cheerful monk living in his little cabin outside of Gethsemane, just outside of Bardstown, giving inspirational talks, writing poems and prayers and dabbling in Zen, best friends with the Dalai Lama. The following pages in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander keep the scathing commentary going. Merton holds up a massive mirror 
for all of us to take a long, hard look at what's reflecting back, such as the work of prophets. You might wonder, where is the hope in that pain? In this toiling with spiritual and cultural illness? Is that it? This is what's wrong? Deal with it? Now, by the time Merton had worn me down to near despair in those pages, he gets to a prescription for that illness. Like anything that is chronic in our lives, it's a prescription that requires patience, discipline, many setbacks, and slow progress. We did not arrive in 2022 and suddenly a mysterious blob of excrement hit the fan. We did not arrive in 2020 to see that happen, nor in 2016 or 2001 or name your date. If we take stock in the words of Thomas Merton, this has been waiting in our culture for a long time. And some of what we face goes beyond whether or not America's divisions can be healed. They're existential. Our planet has put us on notice. Being a Trappist monk, Merton says the way through this, not the cure, not a fix, not a magic wand or miracle, but a way into and through is what he calls the law of love. Now, if you're familiar with Christian language, the law of love needs no explanation. Merton understandably has something to say about it as a monk. He's of course referencing the words of Jesus of Nazareth when he said what the two greatest commandments were and each begin with love. The first one involves love of what is ultimate. For Merton, that was God. For many Unitarian Universalists, it might be this life, this world, this existence. For someone else, it's something completely different. And the second is loving what is right here, between us, among us, this connection right here. What Jesus said was love of neighbor, period. No exceptions. Merton rejects the notion that to love is a duty we need to fulfill. If you're doing, if all you're doing in life is fulfillment of duty, what is dutiful, at some point it becomes a slog, a chore, a checkbox. I am duty bound to love that guy over there, but let me tell you what I really think about him. <laughs> or, bless his heart. Mm -mm -mm. but for Merton it went deeper than that he said the law of love is our nature it's at this point that cynics will break out videos of chimpanzees declaring war on one another and draw comparisons between humans and chimpanzees right now I understand cynicism that looks to tear down any hope in humanity I really do it is almost a second language to me but I want to do better I want to hope and believe and change. Thomas Merton was a man with vices and demons aplenty in his life, despite the image of him as a quiet, contemplative monk. And he wanted to change too. And he believed we all could. So he laid out his thoughts on this law of love that he called a progressive law. Maybe law is a long word here. But he writes of this. We begin by loving life itself. Hence, we must first of all love ourselves. But as we grow, we must love others. We must love them as our own fulfillment. Then we must come to love them in order to fulfill them. 
to develop their capacity for love. And finally, we must love others and ourselves in and for God, the ultimate. But the most fundamental demand of the law of love is that we should love freely. It is a command to commit ourselves to the use of this deep power that is in us, to choose to commit ourselves even in situations where that power does not go into action instinctively. You've all heard this law of love in various forms. As a Unitarian Universalist congregation, we lift this up in our own history. We look to inspiration from the world's religions. It's there. It's that last bit Merton talked about though that's really interesting for me. When was the last time you heard the phrase, love your neighbor and saw it as a deep power within you? How about loving yourself, a deep power? That's where Merton is leading us. To see love not just as a word we throw around, a lofty, maudlin, sugar-sweet, vacuous concept, but a source of power, a power available to us all, within us all. And we choose every single day whether or not we're going to use it. Who has withheld this power, this love, from yourself or the world in the last week? I have no shame in admitting it. I've withheld it driving my car almost every time. <laughs> I've withheld it from myself. I've beat myself up this past week over useless things. I've held, withheld it from those closest to me, from the woman in the black suburban that almost ran over me and my dog, from politicians and pundits and religious leaders and people with demands and expectations and those who've committed evil in our world and those who've committed barely a slight against me. I've made the choice to withhold it, to deny myself that power, to deny the world that power. For Merton, he saw no fix for what ailed his time. Surprising similar to what ails us now. The existential threat of the climate crisis at once injects urgency and a looming dread. Though we too have no easy fixes, we still have a power within us that can guide us into and through what awaits us. Because hiding isn't an option. Screaming into the void and each other accomplishes nothing. You might feel better for a few minutes, but it accomplishes nothing. But love might. It's one of those words that easily becomes a platitude, right? A slogan, a throwaway. You expect a minister to go love, love, love. But when it's seen as an inherent power that we can unleash on ourselves and each other, there's a sobering reality check that comes with it. Our love may not be enough to fix what surrounds us, but it is enough to get us through. A church like ours comes into the picture like so. You're reminded to love yourself, to love the others in this room, to make the choice to be loving in this world, especially when you do not want to be. And most importantly, for a community like ours, encourage one another in discovering that power. Our conversations around self and community care often involve very tangible things. Right? You go to a self-care website, bubble baths, Doritos for me at least. Uh, <laughs> the list goes on. Oreos, I could eat a whole box of those, right? Taking a moment to breathe and meditate. 
Those are wonderful. Keep doing them if they really are a source of self-care. But what Merton calls us to and what I affirm is making a choice to reorient our hearts and minds in how we treat ourselves and each other. That's self-care too. That's community care. Choosing love over vitriol, even if that vitriol is so sweet. It is tempting. It is so easy to access and partake of, making that choice, though difficult as it may be. Choosing love over hate will open up the heart. It doesn't mean you lose your outrage, lose your passion. It doesn't mean you lose holding people and this world accountable and yourselves. But it does mean letting go bit by bit of the temptation to hate, to further destroy that's what hate does. It destroys. And perhaps it only destroys you, but it still destroys. Here, we believe in a better way. Love of self, love of neighbor, love of community, love of the world. It's not a flip of the switch. I wish I could tell you there was one. It's not a smooth path, but it is a practice. And it will see us through. Unscathed? Probably not. Never alone, absolutely. So may we know here we can find a way through together, today and in all days. Maybe so.